Okay, good morning, everyone. If you guys want to stand with me, we'll begin with the call to worship. Just thankful again for this day of worship and rest that we get to come and gather together and and worship the Lord. So if you'll follow along with me, I'll read the bold section. And if you'll read after me, our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Nobles shall come from Egypt Ethiopia shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, Selah. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. You want to turn with me? We'll sing song number four, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleanse me. Let me hide myself from Let the
as we do every week, um, we're called to worship this holy God, this God that is exalted and high and lifted up, and yet we're reminded of our own sin and our own transgressions. And so our confession of sin this morning comes from Isaiah 53, really a prophecy of Christ. It says this, Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we remember here that Christ didn't come for perfect people, right? That he came for messed up people like you and me. And we see all these R's in here. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgression, our iniquities. And so part of what we do every week is confess our sins to God, knowing that we have transgressed God's law and that we need forgiveness. And so we run to him and repent. So if you would read with me the prayer of confession, um, let's read this together. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, we come before you this morning, humbling ourselves, aware of our sinfulness and our tendency to follow our own way. We have violated your holy commandments and transgressed your law. With heartfelt sorrow, we repent and turn away from all our offenses. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, have compassion on us. And by the grace of your Holy Spirit, produce in us the fruits of holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You'll turn with me to song number six. We'll sing, There is a Fountain.
So this morning we remember to trust in the work of Christ, that his work is effective, that he will save his people. And we read this this morning from Matthew 121, our assurance of pardon. I don't know if I've explained this before, but this is um, where we're assured of our pardon or our um, salvation, really, that God is able to save our sins by the work of Christ alone. So that's why we do this every week. But um, this comes from Matthew. This is speaking to Joseph about Mary, and it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So for all of those of us trusting in the work of Christ alone this morning, we can have assurance that God will pardon us, that our sins are forgiven And this is by faith alone. Would you pray with me? Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, humbling ourselves, Lord, um, reminded of your holiness, of your justice, of your almighty power. And we're aware that we are mere creatures in your presence, that you have created us, that you are sustaining us, and that we have rebelled against you, we have sinned against you your holy law, and we have done what is right in our own eyes, and we have not followed you in everything that we do. Would you forgive us this morning? Would you help us to turn from our sin and turn to Christ, who, as we just read, will save his people from their sins? We pray that this would be where our faith lies, and in this alone. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated if you want. Our confession of faith this morning comes from Shorter Catechism, question number 93. And the question is this, what is faith in Jesus? We've been talking about this idea of faith alone, by faith alone, that we're saved by faith alone. What is this? And I just like this really succinct answer if you want to read this with me. The question is, what is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Just love that answer. So, amen. Okay, well, this morning we'll be continuing our study of the book of Acts. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 26 through the end of the chapter. So if you remember last week, we looked at the story of the gospel going to the Samaritans, or maybe that was two weeks ago, rather, and we looked at the story of Simon, this this first kind of false convert in the church, and we talked about this one that professed faith, that was even baptized, but ultimately was more concerned about the gifts that God could give rather than the giver of the gifts, God himself. 
And so this week, I think we'll see a very intentional on Luke's part to put these two stories next to each other. So last week we looked at Simon, the sorcerer, and this week we'll look at the Ethiopian eunuch. And we'll see this contrast between false faith and true faith, or this faith that is merely in the gifts that God gives of, in the case of Simon, and this morning we'll look at true saving faith in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch. And I think the reason that Luke puts these together is to sort of contrast these and really show us the heart of what is true saving faith. Last week we talked more about what this false faith isn't, you know, what it isn't, what true faith isn't in the case of Simon who just wants to buy this power from God. So we'll see the heart of saving faith and we'll also see God's sovereign hand in orchestrating this event where this man from Ethiopia is is saved by the by the preaching of the gospel. So if you want to read with me, we'll follow along, or rather I'll read and follow along with me. We'll be looking at verses 26 through 40. I'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll look at the text. This is the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and there was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azostus, and he was passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word this morning, that as we look at this contrast between false faith that is only interested in what God can give and in how um, in the gifts of God, but is not interested in God himself. And as we look at the Ethiopian eunuch who has true saving faith, who is not concerned with mere gifts or trying to buy the power of God, but is he wants the truth. He wants to know um, who God is and how he can be saved. So we pray that this morning that faith would rise up in us, this faith that we just read about, 
and that we would see Christ this morning in all the scriptures and see him as our only hope in life and death. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So yeah, so interesting contrast, and hopefully it's already started, starting to become clear, the contrast between these two men, Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch. So just a little, um, to go back a little bit, remember the gospel has just gone out to Samaria. So we saw the gospel preached in Jerusalem, and we've seen it expanded to Samaria. And so it's sort of interesting that the first thing that we see here, we'll look at the setting that this takes place in first, that the first thing that happens is an angel of the Lord comes to Philip and tells him to leave. (laughs) There's just been this basic revival that's broken out in Samaria. People are being saved. And so it's sort of interesting that the angel of the Lord tells Philip to go and We could almost enter Philip's mind for a second and think, this seems odd, but we don't see him question this. We see him obey, and he goes. And so he goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so that's Philip's. And then we look also at the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, and we see that in verse 27. So this man was from Ethiopia. So modern day Ethiopia is much smaller um, Ethiopia at that time was basically most of Africa, except for Egypt. So it was a large area, and this man would have come from there. And the scriptures also refer to Ethiopians as Cushites, or the people of Cush. And these were descendants of Ham, if you want to go all the way back to Genesis and see that. And actually in our call to worship, um, we might get to that later. There's, there's both translated Ethiopian or Cushites. So there's this man from Ethiopia that comes. And he's also a eunuch. And so we don't use that word a lot today, but essentially that means he was castrated. So I won't go into much more detail there. But this man was from a foreign country, from Ethiopia, and he was castrated. And this was mostly to serve the purpose of you served the king and the queen mother, as we read here. And this was to prevent relations between them and all sorts of other things. But what's interesting is even in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, we read that eunuchs were not allowed to worship in the temple. And so it's sort of interesting that this man would have sort of been not only an outcast in terms of being from Ethiopia, but was not allowed to enter through the gates and to worship the Lord. But we see even in this setting, this preparation that the Lord is doing, and it says that he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So this is the setting this morning. And then next we'll look at the encounter in verses 29 through 35. We see this encounter between Philip and the eunuch. And so not only does this angel tell Philip to rise and go, but as you see in verse 29, the spirit says to Philip, go over and join his chariot. And it's interesting in verse 30, it says Philip ran to him and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. So we see that this is not a chance event. This is a divinely orchestrated encounter between Philip, the deacon, and this Ethiopian eunuch. This is a divinely orchestrated event. And he says it ran to him, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And this is really amazing, if we think about it, the fact that he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And um, in that day, it was common for people to read out loud. That was the most common way for people to read the scriptures. And so he would have been reading out loud, and Philip would have heard these verses. And it's kind of hard for us to imagine, but there was not a New Testament at that time, right? 
The Gospels had not been written. Acts had not been written. The epistles, all these things. So the only scriptures were the Old Testament at that time. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, who was a major prophet, one of the bigger prophets in the Old Testament. And some of us are probably familiar with some passages from Isaiah, whether it's Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this vision of the Lord in his temple and the train of his robe fills the temple. And there's this instance with the coal and all these things. Um, around Christmas time, there's a lot of quotations of Isaiah 9, of a child being born to us, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Emmanuel, God with us. Or maybe you were familiar with Isaiah 11, where it talks about this shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse. So maybe there's some familiarity with us with the prophet Isaiah, but this eunuch was reading Isaiah. And it's just sort of interesting that Philip just straight up asked him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> there's no small talk. There's no, um, that's a nice chariot that you have or, you know, talking about the weather or something. He kind of gets straight to the point, And he kind of can because he's reading the scriptures already. And so we asked him, do you understand? And so we see um, the eunuch's response in verse 31. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? So he's sort of admitting two things here. He's admitting first a lack of understanding that he doesn't understand what Isaiah is speaking about. But he also admits a second thing. There's humility in his statement. There's this sense of, I need someone to explain this to me. He's not proud. He's not boastful. He's not asserting, I know what this means. I don't need you. There's a humility to his, his response to what Philip says. And I think that is interesting. And so we see even there, the Lord is softening this eunuch's heart, that he is preparing his heart. And even in the verses that he is reading, there's a very providential, um, there's a very providential nature to what he is reading. And we'll see in the preceding verses in verse 32 through 33, we see that he is reading Isaiah and more specifically Isaiah 53. So I think a lot of us might be familiar with this passage. This is talking about the suffering servant. And like I said, Isaiah is one of the most prominent prophets in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 53 specifically, there's this prophecy of this coming servant of the Lord, this one that's going to be endowed with the word and with the spirit. But this servant is also going to suffer. And we'll see that in our verses that he reads basically and that we read this morning that this person this servant will be despised will be rejected will be um the sins of others will be laid on him and not just that but that the lord will lay on him the iniquity of others and so there's this interesting picture of this servant of the lord that's going to reign but is also going to suffer and that we see in our verses that um are quoted in Acts, that this servant is going to go willingly, that he's not going to fight this suffering, that he's going to be like a sheep that is silent before its shears, that even though he won't receive justice, that he's going to remain silent. There won't be complaining from him, that he will go silently to this um, suffering. And so the question that we should be asking is, who is this? Who is this suffering servant? Who is this one spoken of in Isaiah? And we get this question really from the eunuch. He says, who is this speaking about? 
Is the prophet Isaiah speaking about himself or is he speaking about someone else? And there's been lots of debate amongst Jewish scholars. Who is this suffering servant? But we see Philip give us the answer. In verse 35, it says, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. That we can see that Philip is pointing to Christ in Isaiah 53. That this is amazing. (laughs) That Philip is proclaiming the good news of what Christ has done for sinners in the Old Testament. And that Christ is this suffering servant. And as we talked about before, the one that was born of a virgin. Emmanuel, God with us. He was the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And so that's just the book of Isaiah. And there's much more we could talk about the book of Isaiah. It's interesting if you turn to Luke 24, Jesus is talking to some of his disciples after his resurrection. And he says, all of the scriptures are pointing to him. That all of the scriptures are about the person and work of Christ. And maybe, maybe the eunuch had other books of the Bible. Maybe he had Genesis. And so maybe Philip expounded to him about how Christ is the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 that will crush the head of the serpent. Or the offspring of Abraham that will bless the nations. Or maybe he had the book of Exodus, right? And maybe he showed him how Jesus is the better Moses that leads his people through the exodus, not just from slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin and death. Or maybe he had Leviticus and showed how he's the great high priest who offers the sacrifice for his people that is perfect and is once for all. So we don't really know what Philip said, and we can kind of speculate here. But it's amazing to think about this. So Philip is expounding from the Old Testament. That's all he had about the work of Christ. And we can even infer maybe from what happens next that he even told him about Christ's great commission, that he has all authority on heaven and on earth to go to all nations, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them all that God's commanded. And we sort of see that in what happens next. So we've seen the setting. We've seen this encounter between Philip and the eunuch, this providential encounter. And now we look at the response in verses 36 through 40. So Philip is expounding these things about Christ, the good news of what Jesus has done for sinners in the Old Testament, promised that he needs to repent and believe and about this great com- excuse me, this great commission. And so the eunuch responds, and as they're going along the road, he says, "What prevents me from being baptized?" And it's sort of a rhetorical question because the answer is nothing. <laughs> If he's put his faith in Christ and he's repented, then these waters waters of baptism are for him. And as we talked about last week, there's neither Jew nor Samaritan, eunuch nor Ethiopian, that all people that have faith in Christ can be saved. That's the qualification. There's no no nationality. There's none of this stuff that, um, that this is the case, that there is one people of God. And so we read in verse... 38 that he went into the waters and he was baptized and so i just wanted to take a moment there's a lot of confusion about baptism right there's a lot of questions that come from this confusion in the church today even some of the questions are is baptism necessary for salvation is it something that i need to do before i'm saved or is it um do i need to do it before i die if i'm 
if I die before I'm baptized, you know, am I going to go to heaven? There's questions like this. Um, what else? Maybe it's this sort of thought of baptism is something that we do when we're really serious about God, you know, right? That, you know, I wasn't serious before, but now I'm really serious. Or maybe we've sinned really bad, and so we need to get baptized again to wash away our sins, right? Or this passage specifically often gets used as a kind of example of, and the question gets asked, can we just baptize anyone we want in our bathtub or something? Let's just, let's just do it. And so, there's, like I said, there's a lot of confusion. And so we have to ask this question, what is baptism? What is baptism? Because the truth is, baptism is not just a sign from us to God saying, God, I'm really serious now. I mean it. It is actually God's sign to us. Humans did not invent baptism. This was God's invention. This was a sign. It was meant to teach us things about him and his covenant. And I like how the catechism puts it. It's to both declare and confirm. So it's for our benefit. It's to teach us. It's to assure us. And it's to show us things about God's covenant with us, this new covenant that God has made. And it's to teach us that God came to save sinners, that he has come and as surely as the waters of baptism wash us from our external dirt, if you will, that as surely as that is true, God, for those that have faith, Christ will wash us internally of our sins and our guilt. So it's really declaring truths about what God has done and confirming them, that he has risen, that he was buried, that he rose again, that believers will rise again, that we are united to him, that his death is our death, and that it's really truly a means of grace, that it's meant to teach us and assure us, and that, like I said, as surely as we're washed externally, we can have faith that God will wash us internally, and we should remember our baptism we should um, look back on it and have joy and comfort that um, trusting in what God has done and I just wanted to say this that this is not merely the mission of individuals right we talked about the great commission that baptism is very much connected to this great commission right go and make disciples and baptize them this is not the mission of individuals this is the mission of God's church and so to separate the church from baptism is um, going to throw a lot of problems at it. And it shouldn't be the normal practice of what we do to separate baptism from the local church. And you might say, Kendall, isn't this exactly what Philip is doing here, right? <laughs> He's just out in, this, you know, out in the middle of nowhere baptizing a guy in a river. But I think that we have to look at what makes this a unique story in the book of Acts, right? Not only is something like Pentecost unique, but even the way this baptism happens. Philip was someone that had his hands laid on by the apostles. He was spoken to audibly by an angel and by the Spirit. And we will see in a minute that he's actually carried away by the Spirit at the end, as we read this morning. So this is a unique event, and if you get carried away by the Spirit, then maybe you can baptize somebody however you want. But... Um, in, the, in, the, in terms of using this as a kind of rule or guide, we just have to be very careful with how we handle things in the book of Acts. So we see that this is a unique event, but we can still learn much from it. And so like we read, like the prophets of old, if you remember 
Elijah, what happens? He's carried off by the Spirit. And so in a similar way, God is confirming this message to the Ethiopian eunuch that this is a message from the Lord and a messenger from the Lord. And we see even in the midst of this that Philip is taken and he continues to proclaim the gospel. And we see this eunuch have great joy in the midst of this. So, so this is our passage. Let's take a minute like we do every week to reflect and to think about how we can apply these pass, this passage to our lives and think about what some takeaways. So three things this morning. First is the, the goodness of the doctrine of providence, right? The doctrine of providence. And many of us might not be familiar with this word, but this is God's preserving and governing of all things. And we see it very explicitly in this passage. We see God's hand working, not only in sending Philip, but in preparing the eunuch, in him reading the book of Isaiah, maybe the best chapter in the Old Testament that he could be reading, talking about these amazing works that this suffering servant would do. So we see God's hand in this. And we see, hopefully, God's hand in our own lives, right? And many of us know Romans 8, 28, that for those that love God, he works all things for good. And so we can trust that in our lives, maybe sometimes things aren't going well, you know, or maybe sometimes things are going really well. And so learning to trust the Lord, that he is providentially working, that he is governing all things, that nothing's outside of his control. And this should be comforting to us, that God is always at work and also that he will save his people that this Ethiopian eunuch was in the middle of nowhere. God sends a messenger to proclaim the good news to him. And we can see this providence of God in saving the eunuch, that nothing can thwart God's hand. So the importance of the doctrine of providence. Secondly, we see the heart of saving faith. The heart of saving faith. I think that's why Luke has put these two stories next to each other, Simon and the eunuch, that... When we see these contrasted ideas of false and true faith, we see what the heart of saving faith is. And oftentimes, we overcomplicate it, right? And this is what other religions do. We lived in Utah for a while. It was all about Mormonism, right? And all these extra baptisms. And there was, it was all about works. This is literally what they'd say. They would say, you're saved by grace after all that you do. So it was about working as much as you could, and then God would be gracious to you. So there's this sort of working to earn God's grace. And we might condemn that sort of thinking, but it happens in our own lives, right? So often faith is overcomplicated, right? If you don't read your Bible enough, or if you're not on your knees for a certain number of hours every morning, or all these things, we take faith and we sort of turn it into a work. We turn it into this work that we need to do enough good works, that we need to read our Bible enough, And then we can have faith. And then we can come before God. And one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, if you wanted to turn, is in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And they're sort of trying to make him king, right? They want to exalt him to this earthly place of rulership. And he tells them to not work for the food that perishes. And then in verse 28, they ask him this. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? They want to work. They want to do something for God. And this is what Jesus said to them. This is the work of God that you believe in him 
who he has sent. That you believe that this is the work of God. That you believe in him who he sent. That is Christ. (laughs) So we see in John 6 that the work of God is to believe. And we read this this morning in our confession of faith. What is faith? It's not a work. It's receiving all that Christ has done and resting in him alone for salvation. That it is not a work. It is trusting in the work of another. It is trusting in the work of Christ, namely. And so we see here the heart of saving faith is trusting in the work of another. And finally, this leads us into our third point, that the beauty of God's covenant of grace. God's covenant of grace. We see the beauty of that here, that Adam in the garden, he was given what we call a covenant of works, that he was to work in order to enter God's rest, that if he passed the test, if he passed the probation, that God would give him eternal life, that he had to earn this. But we, see, we know ultimately that Adam failed and that we are all born under this covenant, that because of total depravity, we cannot do the will of God, that we are born sinners and we cannot fulfill this law, this perfect standard of perfect perpetual obedience. And so that's why we need a covenant of grace. Covenant of works is where we have to earn the benefits. Covenant of grace is where the benefits are given graciously, earned by another. And we can see the work of Christ in this covenant of grace, that he is the better Adam who did what Adam failed to do, that he secured the benefits. He earned perfect redemption. He fulfilled the law perfectly. What does Galatians 4 say? That he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. That this is what Christ has come to do. Earn eternal life, and not just that, but suffer the curse that Adam earned. Adam didn't earn eternal life. He earned a curse for us. And Christ has come to both earn eternal life and suffer the curse that we deserved. And so we see this is the hope of the Ethiopian eunuch, ultimately. Not in his work, not his ability to come before God and do enough things. He's trusting in the work of Christ, this suffering servant who procured reconciliation to God because of his perfect work and not because of ours. And so this is where our hope should lie this morning, not in our ability, but in the ability of Christ. And as we'll read and as we'll sing today this song, Solid Rock, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And it says this in verse 3. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. May we remember those words this morning. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you that you have not left us in our sin. You have not left us to work our way, our fingers to the bone, but you have sent your Son in the person of Christ who took on flesh, who in the incarnation lived the life that we could not live, fulfilled the law perfectly, and yet was unjustly accused of breaking God's law and suffered the punishment and the curse that we deserved so that we might be made right with you. May our faith be in that alone. 
Would you forgive us when we try to trust in other things, in ourselves, in the work of others, but help us to trust this morning alone in the work of Christ? Would you bless the rest of our day? Would you walk with us and guide us? And by your spirit, would you change us and give us new affections, new desires that long to obey you, that long to have faith in you, and that we would trust in you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we'll sing song number five, Solid Rock. Doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
benediction this morning from Hebrew, he, not Hebrews, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace as you go.